Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and hello to all of our listeners, and welcome to a very special episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. We are speaking today, the Monday after the 2022 federal election, where we have a new government in Labor and a new Prime Minister in Anthony Albanese. As we speak, it looks like Labor will form government in its own right, but probably only just, with 76 or 77 seats, but there's no doubt that one way or another we will have a Labor government. This is perhaps one of the most unique election results in Australia's history, certainly since World War II. We've seen an emphatic rejection of the coalition, especially in the inner city seats of Sydney and Melbourne, uh, but also of Labor, whose primary vote has continued um, to go backwards. We now essentially have a situation where uh, we have a third, a third, a third of the primary vote, about a third going to the coalition, a third going to Labor, and a third going to the Greens or uh, so-called independent parties or independent individuals. Um, Of course, the main, one of the main results of the election has been the rise and the electoral success of the Teal candidates in the inner cities of uh, Melbourne and Sydney. We now have seven Teal candidates heading to Canberra in total, if you include um, Zali Stegel, is around also three Green seats um, added to that. So now the Liberal Party is almost without representation in the inner city areas of Melbourne, um, Adelaide and Perth. Uh, And so, Tony, I can think of no better person, no better Australian to talk with to unpack these results and what they mean for the future of Australia than yourself. And, Tony, um, to begin with, can you give us your assessment of uh, what happened over the weekend? First point to make, Dan, is that the Morrison government can be very proud of its record despite the defeat. it always hurts to lose and defeat always makes us despondent. But it's important to remember the good record that we've got, the proud history that we have and the continuing strengths that we take into the future. So the last thing anyone should do who is normally a supporter of the Liberal Party uh, is to panic over this one defeat. Uh, Yes, we've got to learn the right lessons Uh, But the first lesson is not to panic. uh, And the second lesson is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I really would want to pay tribute to Scott Morrison. Um, It was a little disappointing that the signature agenda item for a fourth term, Super for Housing, uh, came out so late in the campaign. Uh, But certainly the Morrison government has to its credit uh, the AUKUS decision to acquire nuclear submarines probably the most significant decision any Australian government has made in in decades. Uh, There was the world leading uh, standing up to China. Uh, Let's not forget that it was really only after uh, the Australian government decided to keep Huawei out of the 5G network that other countries such as Britain and the United States did likewise. And then, of course, there's the India trade deal, which hasn't been much noticed, but which over time 
will be very significant because it gives us an alternative to China uh, for markets and for intermediate goods, an alternative which is a strategic partner rather than a competitor. So, so Scott Morrison and his team can look back with pride on their good work over the last four years and certainly uh, Josh Frydenberg uh, needs to hold his head up high uh, despite uh, the disappointing result on Saturday night. So, so they're the key points I would like to make at the outset. But also, um, Dan, look, uh, we don't want now uh, to tear ourselves to pieces in what is a voter-repelling argument over whether we're moderate or conservative. Uh, the fact is uh, we've always been a bit of both. Um, I like to say that the Liberal Party uh, is liberal in that it supports lower taxes, smaller government, greater freedom. It's conservative in that it supports the family, small business, and institutions that have stood the test of time. Uh, but above all else, it's the patriotic party. Uh, we're proud of Australia. Um, Australia is still the best country in the world and we want to keep it that way. Mm. No, thank you for that overview, Tony. You mentioned a couple of interesting things and one is to, you said, make sure that we as in the, uh, the Liberal Party learn the right lessons from the defeat what, in your assessment, would be the right lessons for the Liberal Party to learn as it now rebuilds and looks ahead to 2025? Well, um, we've got to accept that we have lost the election. Uh, we've also got to, in a sense, as patriotic, patriotic Australians, wish Anthony Albanese well and hope that his government succeeds because obviously our country is stronger uh, if the government is better. Um, and the job of oppositions is to oppose, uh, not to oppose everything, but certainly to oppose anything that the new government puts forward, which we believe is contrary uh, to the national interest. Uh, and at the same time as we hold the new government to account, uh, we've got to revitalise our party. Uh, that means we've got to try to attract more members, um, it would help if uh, it was a, a more diverse membership, but certainly we've got to attract uh, more members. We've got to revitalise our uh, campaign machinery and we've got to find and recruit uh, candidates who are likely to have electoral appeal. So, so there's really two jobs. There's a job for the parliamentary party, uh, which is to intelligently hold the new government to account and there's a job for the lay party, which is to go out into the community, remind people who normally vote liberal uh, and who think of themselves as liberals that actually <laughs> there's more to do than just vote on election day. Mm. Uh, there's a much greater contribution that needs to be made by people if our party is to be as successful as it should be and if our country is to be as good as it should be. Mm. In terms of the, the policies that were being debated uh, in the lead-up to the election, um, what's your assessment of what role that played in the defeat of the coalition? And I'm thinking here of, of especially climate policy and, 
the policy of net zero. Uh, in my assessment, uh, it was the case that uh, the electoral reason for adopting net zero was to try and ward off the teal challenges in inner city Sydney and Melbourne, and that's been proven to have been an abject failure. My opinion as to why that's the case is having adopted net zero, the coalition could hardly criticise net zero. Uh, and so there was really a lack of scrutiny as to what the teal candidates were offering in terms of the economic and social costs of their, of their climate policies. And that meant that they sort of got off scot-free um, in a way. And I think that played a very big role in the lack of scrutiny on those um, candidates. Are there any particular... I mean, firstly, what, what do you think of that assessment I've given? And, and secondly, are there any other policy issues you, you think played into the result? Dan, it's not really my job to be giving too much overt and explicit advice to the parliamentary party on their policies. But I suppose I, I could note this, that Anthony Albanese said in the campaign on numerous occasions that the climate wars were over. Uh, and certainly, as between the Morrison government and the Albanese opposition, that was substantially true. Interestingly, in elections where, as between the ALP and the coalition, the climate wars certainly weren't over, mm. uh, the 2010 election, the 2013 election and the 2019 election, we got a very different outcome. So, look, uh, politics is a contest and you need to choose the ground on which you want to give battle, on which you want to have the contest, but nevertheless, politics does have to be a contest and I think that the Liberal Party does best, the Coalition does best when we're fighting for Menzies' forgotten people uh, or the contemporary embodiment, at least, of Menzies' forgotten people and that normally means that we're arguing for policies that we believe will increase their opportunities, uh, lower their cost of living, uh, make it easier to get ahead and to give their kids a better future. This is the thing that wins us elections. When we're able to say, here are the impediments to your life that we're removing here, the benefit, here are the benefits for your life that we're able to provide because we're good economic managers and because we're able to keep the country safe and secure. Mm. I just want to build on this point about, you know, the forgotten people and those who are often without a voice, certainly in the major parties and the major institutions of our society. Um, I just want to run past you some preliminary analysis we've done of the primary vote going to uh, One Nation, the UAP and the Liberal Democrats as a bit of a proxy for a protest vote, if you like. Um, and I think there's some really interesting results here in terms of, you know, the forgotten people and, and those who don't feel the majors uh, are giving them a voice. Um, so what we've done is analysed the primary vote of, of those three parties uh, across all the electorates. And it's really interesting to see where that vote is high in Werriwa, for example, in the outer metropolitan part of uh, New South Wales, which is Whitlam's old seat and also Mark Latham's old seat, that's at 21%. So one in five have voted for One Nation UAP or the Liberal Democrats. It's also very high in outer metropolitan, outer suburban Melbourne seats. So Bruce, Scullin, Holt, Hotham and Caldwell, these are all Labor seats where at least 15% of the vote went to one of those um, three parties. 
Now, to me, that indicates uh, a fairly significant amount of frustration among those voters, probably mostly attributable to the lockdowns uh, in Victoria. Um, and I think that that is an area that is ripe for the centre-right and the Liberal Party to be going into and to be making a case for why those disenfranchised, frustrated voters should be voting um, for the Liberal Party and not to, not to worry about and not to bother about trying to re-win re these inner city seats. Um, what's your assessment of, of the situation? Uh, you've made a very good point, Dan. Uh, there is a long-term trend uh, for relatively affluent people to vote more to the left and relatively less affluent people to vote more to the right. Mm. Uh, we saw it with Donald Trump's win in the United States. Uh, he basically won the flyover states. Uh, he didn't win uh, the rich East Coast and West Coast. Uh, we saw it with Boris Johnson's win in Britain in 2019 and the so-called Red Wall uh, falling to the Conservative parties. And we even saw a bit of it uh, in the 2019 Quiet Australians election here. Um, what we saw, um, we saw the converse of it on Saturday night with the Liberal Party losing a swag of, uh, of seats in upmarket parts of town. And, and I think we've got to appreciate uh, that this is a long-term shift mm. and, and if we focus too much on winning back our once blue ribbon seats, we might end up failing to win the seats in outer metropolitan areas which, as those figures you cited indicate, are now quite, uh, quite winnable uh, with a good campaign and good candidates. Our voting heartland is shifting from places like Vaucluse uh, to places like Penrith, and we've got to make sure that our cultural heartland uh, doesn't stay in places like Vaucluse because that might make it much harder to win the overall election. Uh, yes, we don't want to. We don't want to write off any seat. Absolutely, you don't ever want to write off any seat, particularly seats that have been long-term Liberal seats. But you don't want to so focus on the handful of teal seats that we lost that you ignore the much larger numbers of opportunity seats in outer metropolitan and regional areas. Mm, I think that the term opportunity seats are a really good one. And, of course, you, Tony, also uh, were someone who could appeal very much to people in those heartland suburban seats uh, almost by instinct. I think there's a long trend of, you know, Menzies, Howard, yourself, and to an extent Morrison, at least at 2019, and I think there's an enormous opportunity for the centre-right to venture out into these areas and, and make a case to the voters. I'd be willing to bet that a vast majority of that 15 to 20% who voted for UAP, Lib Dems or One Nation in these suburban seats have never voted Liberal in their life. And I suspect it's because they've never been given a good reason to vote Liberal because it's very rare that you hear a Liberal Party candidate going out to these regions and going out to these parts of the country and making the case. If you were in the position of, again, say you were 
you know, casting your mind back to when you were first opposition leader, but say you were faced with the current electoral map and the current dynamic, what would you do um, to go out to these uh, outer suburban, outer metropolitan parts of the country and, and make the argument as to why, you know, Liberal or National parties are a better bet for, for sort of low, low-income working-class Australians? What would be your main arguments? Well, I suppose the first thing to be done in these parts of, uh, of our cities is to try to build up the local Liberal Party and particularly in areas that have high migrant populations, I reckon the Liberal Party should be their natural political home. Mm. Uh, what, what is it that migrant communities most care about? They care about family, they care about small business, they care about education because they want their kids to have the best possible future and and these are really our areas. Um, we want to support the family uh, and keep it together. We certainly want to encourage small business and we believe that the education most worth having is one which is academically rigorous and equips people uh, to go out into, into life confident and able to get ahead. So I reckon that... Uh, any investment that the Liberal Party makes in outer metropolitan areas will be well and truly rewarded. And, and I can absolutely understand um, when you think of uh, the Mossman branch uh, in my own former electorate being, I think, the first ever branch of the Liberal Party, I can, I can absolutely understand uh, our desire to win back Warringah, to win back Wentworth, to win back North Sydney, Etc. Um, but but let's not underestimate how entrenched some of these teals will be, particularly if a Labor government accepting that their de facto Labor members uh, lavishes a bit of uh, a trophy spending on them. Mm. Uh, let's not underestimate how entrenched these teals might be, um, and and let's be judicious in where we invest our political efforts. In the end, uh, we will succeed if we are the party of aspirational Australia, uh, if we are the party that is going to make it easier uh, for Australians who want to get ahead to keep more money in their pockets and to have more freedom and opportunity to do the best for themselves. And, and I reckon... Um, without neglecting anywhere, uh, that is overwhelmingly out of metropolitan and regional Australia. Mm. Yeah, I reckon you're right. And this is why I'm pretty optimistic about the future of the centre-right, because in many ways, I reckon this is the election we had to have in some ways, and that's not to cast any dispersions on, on the individuals who, who unfortunately lost their seats. Um, but something like this was always going to happen when you're trying to straddle you know, two very different voter bases, one in the outer metropolitan regional parts of the country and the other in the inner cities, eventually something has to give and, and, and that it did in a, very, in a very, very big way. I'd like now to turn to, you know, the next few years and really the rest of the decade in terms of um, the direction of the centre-right and the, the direction of the nation. And there's a couple of things I'd like to ask you. The first is something that John Howard said, and I raise this because you were a 
a senior minister in, in the Howard government and you saw John Howard uh, up and close and, and the operation of that, that government firsthand. And I remember John Howard once said that, look, people might not like me, but they do know where I stand. And that was one of the, the main takeaways, I think, in terms of his lessons of, of leadership is you don't need to necessarily be liked, but people have got to know what you stand for and that you stand for something. Do you think the Liberals need a leader now that can claim a similar mantle to, to Howard in terms of being what you might call a conviction uh, politician? What's your assessment on that? I, I always would like myself to see uh, uh, conviction politicians rather than, as it were, political managers. Uh, uh, what's the point of being in politics if there's no conviction? Mm. I mean, the whole point of being in politics is to make change for the better and change for the better doesn't come about just because person X or person Y happens to be in the ministerial wing. It comes about when um, purposeful governments do what's needed uh, to solve problems and to nudge our country in better directions. So, so, yes, I think we do need more politicians of conviction and courage. And, look, uh, all, the, all the talk is that Peter Dutton is going to be the next opposition leader. Uh, I know Peter very well. Uh, I admire him very greatly. I think he was the best defence minister in decades. Uh, pity he only had 12 months or so in the job. Uh, but I think he's uh, certainly a, a good man uh, to hold the new government to account and a good man uh, to rally the Liberal Party base, which is what we need in the months and years ahead. You reckon Peter Dutton can win these met metropolitan out of metropolitan seats? Is, he's the, is he the guy that can do this? I mean, to me, he seems like he is in terms of, you know, his capacity to communicate in a pretty straightforward way. I think mm. he's got pretty good instincts on, on many issues. Mm. Um, perhaps he hasn't been as outspoken on some issues given his uh, position as a senior minister. Is he the kind of guy that can, can lead the centre-right to this uh, heartland strategy? I certainly think he, he can. And knowing him well... I think that his instincts on all of these issues are sound. And again, I, I don't want to give him advice, but I, I'm confident uh, that uh, he's the kind of politician who won't have much truck for political correctness in all its forms and will want to cut through the waffle uh, and ask the hard questions about what practical difference are all of these various measures and proposals going to make because in the end, um, that's the point. The point is to make a difference. The point is to bring about change for the better and I think that's overwhelmingly his focus. Mm. No, great. It'll be interesting to see how, how it shapes up over the next couple of weeks. Tony, one other uh, area that I wanted to turn to uh, just briefly now, is the Liberal National Party's agreement. Um, it's, the coalition is a function of agreement between the Liberal Party and the National Party, and that agreement is the subject of change. Uh, my understanding is uh, following an election, it's par for the course for that election, uh, sorry, for that agreement to be um, revisited, and um, there's nothing to say that it has to go ahead. 
you know, that uh, coalition may or may not go ahead, although I think it's likely that it will continue. But in what form it goes ahead uh, is the subject of uh, internal debate uh, between the Liberal and National parties. Uh, Tony, a couple of questions here to start with. What I'm interested in is, given your experience as um, leader of the Liberal Party and leader of, of the coalition for a number of years, what are sort of the mechanics? What are the nuts and bolts of these of this agreement between the Liberal and National parties? How does it how does it work in in practice, and what are some of the factors that are taken into consideration? Well, it really wasn't an issue in my time as leader, because I was always able to work in lockstep with uh, with uh, Warren Truss, who was uh, who was my National Party counterpart. So it really wasn't an issue. Um, we worked very well together. We were very like-minded on policy issues. Uh, I used to joke uh, back in those days that a, uh, a liberal was a city national and a national was a country <laughs> liberal. I know some of my country liberals didn't like me putting it in those terms, but really uh, uh, there was there was, if you like, a slightly different flavour with the National Party, but there wasn't uh, any real differences of substance and and I think we can really um, get all get far too wrapped up over the nuts and bolts of the coalition agreement. That really only becomes an issue uh, when the leaders don't see eye to eye, uh, and there is a divergence between the two parties on policy grounds. And that wasn't the case in my time. It's worth pointing out, I think, Dan, that the National Party didn't lose any seats in this in this election. That's right. So while there's a few overexcited Liberals here in New South Wales hyperventilating uh, about the need to be more teal, uh, not that being uh, particularly teal uh, helped, I mean, it was the so-called modern Liberals who lost their seats um, and it was those who didn't feel the need to adopt that tag who um, by and large held their seats uh, but look, um, the fact that the, the National Party has held all its seats should be at least as instructive mm. uh, as the difficulties that we had in these so-called teal seats. And the one final point I'd make here, Dan, is that the Liberal Party always flourishes best when it is in a strong and cohesive coalition um, with, uh, with an equally vigorous National Party. Um, the Menzies government, the Fraser government, the Howard government, the Abbott government, they all did well because they had a strong coalition mm. and any idea that somehow the Libs will be helped by a less close association with the Nats is not borne out by the consistent record. No, I think that's a good point, Tony. And just to underscore that, the as you say, the Nats held on to all their seats with nine seats. And also the LNP uh, in Queensland, they only went backwards one seat. It was the Liberal Party uh, throughout Australia, other than in Queensland, which went backwards by uh, 15 seats and dropped 4.3% on its uh, primary vote. So it's an important point to make. And also what's interesting about the Nationals is they, on a nationwide basis, they actually have a very low 
primary vote, only about 4%, which is actually less than both One Nation and, and UAP, although only marginally. But they're extremely effective at targeting their resources at the seats they hold. And they've done a remarkable job, even more so because they've had to really defend liberal policy um, of net zero, which was going to have a disproportionate effect, uh, impact in the region. So um, they've done, electorally speaking, a, a very um, strong job. Uh, Tony, just to end our discussion today, um, what are the kinds of, so we've talked about the broader issue here and the broader challenge for the centre-right, which is to make En-ROADS into the, the suburbs and outer suburbs. Um, are there any sort of specific uh, policies that you think uh, should be the emphasis of, uh, of the coalition over the next uh, several years into, in terms of how they may be able to best, uh, best achieve that? Uh, again, Dan, I, I don't really want to be giving too much specific policy advice uh, to uh, my successors, uh, but I do think there are some fundamentals that are at the heart of all successful centre-right governments. Um, you've always got to have a very strong commitment to the military, and that doesn't just mean spending more money. It means making sure that the money is well spent. Uh, you've always got to have uh, a, a very keen eye on the well-being of small business, uh, and that doesn't just mean keeping taxes as low as possible. It means trying to avoid uh, all of these initiative sapping regulations yeah. uh, that governments, particularly bureaucrats, have uh, a bit of an infatuation with. And, and given that every single dollar that government spends ultimately comes from taxpayers, we've got to treat government spending as carefully as we would treat our own. And, and the rule in the Howard government and the rule in my government was that there could be no new spending uh, other than on national security or economic infrastructure that was not paid for by reductions in existing spending. And, and I think it's very important out of respect for taxpayers and out of consistency with liberal conservative principles to maintain that rule and in opposition to keep reminding uh, the new government, which I suspect will be uh, profligate, um, even more profligate than has been the recent case, mm. remind the new government of the fact that uh, money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, you cannot keep spending on the back of almost zero interest borrowings from the Reserve Bank, which I suspect might be the temptation of the incoming government. Indeed, I suspect so as well, Tony. So on that, uh, thank you very much again for your time and your generous insights. I think it's been a very important yeah. uh, election and there'll be much for us to continue to discuss and over the coming weeks, and you'd like to end on something else, Tony? Well, I would just like to say, Dan, that it's inevitable that people will be disappointed and despondent, that Liberal voters will feel disappointed and despondent uh, at this time. But, um, look, uh, in a democracy, uh, you don't always win, and in a healthy democracy, uh, there are occasionally change of governments. And even the Howard government, which was our best modern government, um, 
ended after 11 years in a disappointing defeat. Uh, but <laughs> you can come back. Uh, look at the way we came back after just two terms because we were a cohesive opposition uh, that remembered that politics was a contest and that it was the duty of the opposition to oppose. And given all the difficulties that the Albanese government is likely to face, we could very easily be competitive uh, at the next election, uh, provided we don't uh, uh, in engage in too much recrimination or lose our nerve. Indeed, well said, Tony. Thank you for your, your time and your insights. And I'm looking forward to unpacking all of this again over the uh, coming weeks and months. So thank you again, Tony. Thanks, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.